Welcome to the American Negotiation Institute's podcast, where we will teach you the skills you need to get more out of life. And now your host, Kwame Christian. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiation for Entrepreneurs. I'm Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer by trade, but my passion lies in teaching you how you can use negotiation and persuasion to get more of what you want and how to make the difficult conversations in your life easier. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to give a couple of listener shout-outs. I'd like to give a shout-out to Shay from Houston and Zook from Queensland, Australia. So Zook sent me a really great message. In part, he said, Personally, I've used a lot of your techniques, both in large and small groups, which has been invaluable. However, the thing I like most is the day-to-day negotiations that you've helped me to understand exist. Knowing that they are there helps me to resolve issues faster. And so that message really made my day because that's what this podcast is all about. Thank you so much for reaching out, both of you. And in this final episode of the year, I'd like to give a special shout out to all of you listeners. We started only eight months ago, and as of this week, we've had over 20,000 downloads in 63 different countries. So thank you so much for listening and sharing this podcast. You know I love hearing from all of you, so if you haven't yet, please connect with me on LinkedIn. There's a clickable link in the episode description that takes you straight to my LinkedIn page. So just connect, then I'll shoot you a message. I really want to hear what kinds of topics interest you, and LinkedIn is the easiest way for me to connect with you. And for those of you who are looking for the free negotiation guides from previous episodes, like the Negotiation Prep Guide, the Introvert Negotiation Guide, or the Salary Negotiation Guide, or the Car Negotiation Guide, those links are all in the description as well. I wanted to end this year with a very special interview. So today we're talking to President Jim Tressel, the president of Youngstown State University and the former coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes. So you're probably wondering how I was able to score this interview. So you remember throughout this year we've been together, I've been telling you that the first step in any negotiation is the ask. But that's where most people end up failing. They fail because they fail to ask for what they want. So to combat this, we should all engage in what I call rejection therapy, where we ask for things that we think are impossible to get. So this has two possible outcomes. First, we get rejected and we start to desensitize ourselves to the failure, which is a good thing. Or the second thing that could possibly happen, we could win and get something awesome in the process. So for me, asking President Tressel to come on the show was part of my rejection therapy, and I ended up getting an accidental win, which means that we all win. So for those of you that don't know him, let me tell you a little bit about President Tressel. Tressel is essentially Ohio royalty. He was one of the most successful coaches in NCAA history. 229 career wins, 9 national title game appearances, 6 Big Ten titles, 9 bowl appearances, and national championships in 91, 93, 94, 97, and 2002 with the Buckeyes. Under President Tressel's leadership, enrollment increased for the first time in five years, and the university attracted its most academically accomplished freshman class ever. In addition, the university revamped its development operations and hit record fundraising levels, announced its first Rhodes Scholar recipient, reconfigured its executive leadership organization, froze tuition for two consecutive years, and expanded its scholarship offerings. The reason I wanted to bring President Tressel onto the show is to teach us about the keys to persuasive leadership. He has a great book on the topic of leadership called The Winner's Manual, and he's been incredibly successful as a coach and a university administrator, and I know we can learn a lot from his experience. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Thank you so much for joining us today, President Tressel. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. 
So one of the main reasons we wanted to have you on the show is because you've earned an impressive national reputation for your leadership abilities. So can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your leadership philosophy? Yeah, I've grown uh, over the years to have an interest in studying what leadership is and what leadership does and how one can grow in their ability to be a leader. And I've come to the conclusion that many, many people think leadership is a position that you hold, uh, you know, whether it's president or head coach or vice president or sergeant or first string or whatever. And I think the first thing that you have to grow to understand that leadership is not a position, but leadership is an action that you take to serve others. And especially with young people, sometimes when they start to try to figure out what being a leader is, they get caught up in, well, I want to be the president of the club, or I want to be the treasurer, or I want to have a certain role that I have found it helpful, especially working with the age person I have, which is the college-age student for the last four decades, is that you need to continually message and help them remember that leadership is not a position or a rank, but leadership is the action that you take to serve others who happen to be a part of whatever it is you're a part of. And so leadership as service really has been the focus of what I believe about leadership. So as you were studying leadership and, and getting better yourself, what were some resources that you used to improve your skills? I really tried to read about people that I thought had done a great job of serving. Obviously, people who had had significant positions. So often, what's fun about positions is that it gives you an opportunity to serve. Uh, and so I, I like to read, especially when I was in the coaching world, I read constantly about coaches who had been highly successful, both with their one loss record, if you will, but also their impact on their students. I liked to go and hear people speak about what they thought leadership was. I remember as a young professional in my second year out of college and in grad school and attending a motivational institute, if you will, and hearing Zig Ziglar speak and Mary Kay from Mary Kay Cosmetics speak and Jesse Owens and Bob Richards, old time folks, because that was 40 some years ago, and just starting to craft what I thought were the takeaways from their lives. So I think reading and listening are critical components to developing your knowledge base and, and your beliefs in what leadership is all about. Hmm. So for you, as a successful coach and now as a successful president, do you think it's more the, the X's and O's of either as a coach, what happens on the football field, or as a president, the intricacies of the various departments? Do you think that leads to more success, or do you think it's really those leadership skills that you've honed over the years that has led to your consistent success? Yeah, I would say the latter. We always felt that the depth in which we could serve our students, interestingly enough, it many times equated into more success on the field. Uh, the harder we worked to develop the individual and help them grow in all the phases of their life, it was not coincidental that they also became the best at playing their position or doing their uh, role uh, within a team. So I think it's important to have the accountability of developing the competencies of what you're trying to teach within your, in our case, it was our team or here at the university, competencies of whatever department 
whatever discipline a faculty member might be teaching in or whatever, that's critical. The accountability of doing your job is very important. But I think the thing that takes you to the next level is helping someone, serving someone to grow in all of the phases of their life that they deem important. Yeah, I agree. That's that's phenomenal. And I feel like a lot of times people miss that because they act too strategically and um, fail to really invest in the people. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you said that. And I'm sure the audience is getting a lot out of that too. In your position, I know you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of elite people. And that's one of the things I'm sure that led to your success. But along with that, people who are used to being top dog often have big egos. So how have you managed dealing with people with big egos and and getting them on board to your agenda? I think one of the things, Kwame, that you need to work extremely hard on is, is helping people keep things in perspective and helping people understand that they individually are insignificant without every single other person around them, regardless of their role or their notoriety. And so helping people keep perspective, I think, has really been a mainstay, and yourself included. Sometimes as the leader, the head coach, the president, whatever, sometimes you can lose perspective about your relative importance and forget about the fact that every single person that's a part of the organization or the team or the university or whatever, every single one of of their roles is important and they as humans are important. And I have found that at times it can be more difficult with that person of, of high notoriety or high ego or whatever, because throughout their lives, everyone has, you know, kind of patted them on the back and told them they're wonderful and, and all those kinds of things. And, and if, if that's the bulk of the messaging you're getting as humans, sometimes we believe it. And not to say that they're not important and they're not wonderful, but to keep in mind that, you know, none of us are wonderful without everyone else. Right. So for you as a leader of the university and and also, of course, as the leader of the Buckeyes, as the coach, you've reached some national levels of significance. And so how have you been able to maintain your humility in a way that still allows you to lead your your team in in an effective way? You know, I don't know if there's a trick to maintaining humility. You have to believe that you are just one of the cogs in the wheel. I don't think that you can believe that you're something special and then develop humility. I think that you have to have the confidence that what you add to the overall group is important. There's no question about that, but it's really irrelevant without everyone else. And like anything else, to teach someone something, the first thing that has to get in place is they have to believe it. It's one thing to say, you know, that you need to be humble or that you need to appreciate others or respect others, be aware of others, be compassionate to others. It's one thing to say that we should do that. It's another thing to say that we believe that. And so it's a it's a conversation that I think has to be constant and you have to, in your own life, live it because you can't ask someone to be something that you are not trying hard to be and believe deeply in. So I think having the constant reminders and the constant message that, hey, this whole existence we have is bigger than ourselves. And my experience has been we couldn't have a great team until we realized that it was bigger than simply what being good would bring to us. And it had to 
can be much bigger than that. And that's part of the fun of trying to create a good working group together. Because let's face it, the media likes to single out wonderful performances or they like to hype individuals. But you, with your group, need to make sure that while we know that the outside world is going to say, well, the only reason we were good was because of our Rhodes Scholar here last year or our great quarterback 10 years ago or whatever, we all know that whatever it was we were able to accomplish was because everyone was important. Right. Yeah, this is deep because, like I said, I know you're dealing with big egos, and this is something I think would really help our audience too. Can you take us a little bit deeper into these conversations? So what do they look like? So let's say hypothetically, if we have somebody who is a coach, an assistant coach, but was is coming from an all-star role as, as a head coach somewhere else, and they're used to doing things their way. So how would you approach that conversation to persuade them to see themselves as another cog in the wheel? Well, I've always believed that the uh, first thing that you have to do is try to get a handle on what the person's thinking. I've always, whether it was my students or my colleagues, have always wanted to know where they were coming from, what their thoughts were, what they thought was important, what their ideas were, as opposed to just giving them their marching orders or their list of expectations. I always found that it's been helpful to get in a dialogue so that how people feel and what they think is what they think. And I don't think you can be afraid of having those open discussions. And I think a couple good things can happen from that. Number one, you can get some ideas that you didn't have. So I've always gotten the best ideas from others. I don't think I have anything original in my life. And the other thing I think you can do when you can have that dialogue, have that conversation, get that feeling for what someone's thinking is, is you can help clarify sometimes a misperception they might have. I used to tease my players that, hey, I know you go back to the dorm every night and talk about what we should do. If you were in charge of what you would do, tell me what that is, because I might get a great idea from it. And maybe we should be doing that. Or I might be able to help you understand why we're doing this. And I think once people understand why we're doing what we're doing and have input into what we're doing, feel a part of that. My experience has been that you have a chance to build a commonness, a common cause. Now, it's a lot easier with a small group. You know, I had used to have 100 players and a dozen coaches, and, and creating and having those dialogues and so forth is much easier than 13,000 students and 2,000 employees. Still, I think it's really the same thing. It's getting a feel for what people are thinking, what they believe, what their ideas are, and having that interaction, you know, to try to help grow as a group with anyone's idea, it doesn't matter whose idea it was, but also help people have a little bit more of an understanding of why we're proceeding the way we are. And then I guess the other thing I would say is not ever being afraid to say, hey, you know what, the way we were proceeding might not have been the best way. We've learned something. So maybe we need to do this or that. This is great advice, and um, I'm running into a little bit of a problem here because I, I'm running out of space on this piece of paper <laughs> from taking all wow. these notes. <laughs> this is really good. One of the things that I really find interesting from this is that I think people have a misconception when it comes to leadership that the leader stands on high and just barks instructions to their team and the team follows. But this is really interesting to me to hear how much the team's input matters 
and how much you take the time to to listen to the coaches and the players to essentially be willing to be persuaded yourself in order to show your buy-in to the process as well. Well, one of the phrases, and I don't know where I heard it or if I even heard it or if I made it up or whatever, I'm not sure, but I used to tell my people all the time that if you're interested in being able to influence in a positive way, then you first have to be influenceable because folks don't want to know just what you think. They want you to know what they think and feel as if they're being open dialogue. Now, we're all tied to constraints. You know, we can't have an hour discussion in between every play in a game. We only have 25 seconds. So there obviously has to be a lot of lead-up discussion as to how we're going to go forward. We are going to have to make decisions at times when you have to make decisions. But what's critical, I think, is that willingness to evaluate the decisions you made in a collective manner and talk about the rationale and and at times say, you know what, we should have taken so-and-so's idea. Ours wasn't the best idea. We thought it was at the time, but it may not have been, so that's our chance to improve. And so it's not a short process because there are moments when you have to bark orders. You know, when there's a deadline due and decision has to be made and game has to be played or a decision has to be made, it has to be made. Hopefully there's been a lot gone into how you get to that point, and just as much put into how you're going to evaluate those ongoing decisions that you have to make. Right. Wow, this is really, really good stuff. Hmm. So it sounds like earlier in the conversation we were talking about humility, having that humility within yourself, and then now it's almost like vulnerability, being willing to admit mistakes and let other people in. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I think that's true, and I think you have to create a, an environment, again, which isn't easy, but you can't have people fearful of their own vulnerability. If someone, if you take someone's idea and then it ended up not being the best thing, and then all of a sudden you can't say, well, man, you messed this up. You know, we don't need your input anymore because then you're going to get limited input if there's that sense. We used to talk a lot as a staff about the fact that we were going to spend hours and hours and hours and argue and everything else. But then when we come up with the plan, we're going to go out and we're going to do the plan. And then we're going to come back in and evaluate it. And we're not going to keep a scorecard of whose idea worked and whose didn't. And I can't believe, you know, took your idea and we'll never listen to you again. Because if people are worried about that, they're not likely to tell you what they're thinking. So it's an exhausting, ongoing, difficult in this day and age because everyone wants immediate results. But I think if you're going to build something long-term, it can be quality. You're going to have to understand that there's going to be ups and downs. And even when there's ups, you better still evaluate what's next because just because you won yesterday doesn't mean someone's not going to figure out a way to, to beat you tomorrow. So there has to be that openness and uh, willingness to put yourself out there. Right. Hmm. So with these conversations that you're having, when you're getting ready to maybe persuade somebody or have these kind of high-level conversations, how do you find yourself preparing for those? Is there a process that you use or do you just go into it and go by your gut? How does that work for you? I think there's two phases of that. One is if you're doing long-term planning, then I think you have some time to request 
significant input, and I like to use surveys, and I like to use focus groups, and I like to create frequencies of what someone's thinking and so forth. Then there's also the ones that are a little bit more uh, rapid in that sometimes you have to get a decision today and you don't have the ability to do a survey and have a long conversation and discussion and, and have a consensus building time and, and an exhaustive process. So when I prepare for those strategic things and those things that are really going to help us shape long-term planning, I like to get as much information and then talk it through, whether it be individually sometimes or collectively with small groups. Then there's other times, you know, where it's tough to prepare because you don't have, you know, something new popped into the situation, a decision, something you weren't expecting or counting on or whatever, but yet there's a deadline looming. You might not have as much ability for as much input as you would like. If that makes sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That does. That makes a lot of sense. I, I like the the idea of with long term planning using surveys and focus groups because again, it goes back to your style of gathering input from other people uh, when you're making decisions. So that I appreciate that consistency there. That's impressive. One other thing I wanted to ask you about was conflict. And so, as a leader, of course, there are going to be instances where we have to deal with conflict and difficult conversations. How do you approach those? Is there a different approach from the way you would approach just typical high-level conversations? You know, you know, it's funny because you're never without those. And I think they sometimes depend upon how long you've been together. And I think the more you know one another and, and the more consistency and stability you've had together, they can happen more frequently. And sometimes when you're just in the beginning stages of creating those relationships, creating that trust, creating that openness and willingness to be vulnerable and not being guarded and all those things, you know, it's harder. And so depending upon how long you're together, I think determines how you handle the conflict. I think at the beginning, you're just trying to figure one another out and there has to be a time when that trust develops. And if it doesn't get there, I'm not sure you're ever going to get there. And then the conflicts might get solved unilaterally. But if you really can develop that relationship and, and that trust, and there's so many things. We're only in our third year here at Youngstown State in a much larger environment than just a small team. So many more personalities, so many more opinions, so much more history. And until you really can really grow to know one another. Conflict is hard. And uh, I'm not pretending that, uh, you know, we've got the answer to it because time is so critical. And I don't know if you can have a great relationship that's short term just because we're all human. Hopefully conflict, the longer you've been together, you can just be very transparent and open and, and know that's where the person's coming from. Sometimes when you're just getting to know one another, you know, people aren't as willing and open to be as transparent as you need to be in, in that resolution. So what steps do you take to build trust with those around you? Oh, boy, you know, other than exhaustive time spent together, I don't have a quick fix for it. I think in anything, trust gets developed a little bit more when you have a little proof you know, when you come into a situation and you're trying to create that tight group, you're just going on a little bit of blind faith. And that's blind faith is not that strong. 
I think the longer you're together and you have a little proof of how working together and, and being willing to be open with one another. And, and I think you have to be a keen observer and a keen listener. Well, that doesn't happen overnight. Many times when you go into a new situation, the first time you sit with someone, you know, they're going to try to get their point across, their thoughts, their wants, their needs, and see if they can quickly convince you of their, uh, that they've got a handle on what we need to do. But then so is the next person and the next person and the next person. But until you've assimilated all that information, made some decisions, tested the waters, played some games, whatever. And when I mean games, I mean contests, not tricky games. Had some results. It's hard to get the total togetherness. And that's why in in sports, we always talk about, you know, where was your breakthrough win where all of a sudden everyone said, you know what, we are heading in the right direction. And I am going to be more open and more faithful in in, uh, believing in the total cause. And, you know, in this highly competitive, especially in higher ed, challenging environment, it's hard to have those breakthrough wins. And uh, everyone looks at a win a little bit differently. It was easy in football. We had a game. <laughs> but, you know, in a, in a larger sense, you don't have as simple a breakthrough opportunity to develop that trust, which will then lead you to be able to be more effective in conflict resolution and so forth. That's really interesting. I was I was really hoping you would give some kind of quick tip, but there really isn't no. any easy way to really do it. Is. Nope. Nope, there really isn't. And it seems as though the key to this is consistency. So you show up and you you act in accordance to your values. You act with integrity and you do that consistently over time. And that's the type of action that builds trust with the person. Is that right? Yeah, I I would agree with that. And, you know, I, I think it's really important that you do and are who you said you would be. Because I think all of us have been tricked and, and all of us have been misled. and. So I think it's really critical. If you say you're going to do something, if you say you're going to listen, then you have to listen. If you say you're going to communicate, you have to communicate. The problem is there's only 24 hours in the day, and that's why it takes time. Right. This is good. This is good information. But I know you have other things to do, so I'm going to wrap this up quickly. Um, One of the things that I've seen about you and heard about you is that you are a strong believer in habits. And so can you share a few of the habits that you believe have led to your success? You know, I think one of the key habits is despite, you know, the difficulties that everyone faces in whatever arena they're in, the hardships you face and whatever, I think you have to have the habit of being grateful, grateful for the opportunities, grateful for one another, grateful for the simple freedoms we enjoy in this country. And so often we get caught up in our hardships versus our blessings. And uh, the habit, we used to always tell our guys, you can't be happy and ungrateful at the same time. It's impossible. And you have to either be grateful, you know, and happy or ungrateful and unhappy because they can't coexist. Wow. That is good. (laughs) That is good. It's funny. I, I remember, I've heard this before, and I remember trying to set the habit of writing five things every morning that I'm grateful for. And I remember seeing a marked difference in my attitude throughout the day on the days that I did do it versus the days yep. that I didn't do it. Yep. Question. Did I do it consistently? No. <laughs> I have no idea why, but I'm, I'm glad that you said that because now I'm going to make a concerted effort to get back to that. Well, and you know, you can't beat yourself up 
you know, it's like anything else. It's like when you make the New Year's resolution that I'm going to lose 10 pounds and I'm only going to eat lettuce and I'm going to do this and that. And then you do it for a couple of days and you fall off the wagon and then you beat yourself up for it. You know, you've got to understand that if you do make that decision that I'm going to be grateful, I'm going to, every day I'm going to, I'm going to write five things down and so forth. And uh, uh, if you do that some of the time, that's going to help you. If you don't do it all the time and you beat yourself up, it's not going to help you. So you have to be, you know, a little bit realistic and forgiving of yourself at times, knowing, though, that the more you do it, the better you'll be. Hmm. I appreciate that. That's, that is very good to hear. Because um, for me, I've, I have that habit. Uh, one habit I do have uh, consistently, it's a bad habit, is, is beating myself up when I don't reach these high standards. So, but right. like you say, it's counterproductive. Yep. Good deal. So before you go, if you could challenge our audience to do one thing in the next week to become a better leader, what would it be? Listen. Wow. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It doesn't mean agree. It doesn't mean do everything you hear. It means listen. And uh, if you'll do that, then I think you'll have a better chance of serving those that you're trying to lead better. The less you listen, I think the less effective. And again, it goes back to that old, how many hours are there in the day? You know, in technology, you know, with email and text messages and so forth, all of a sudden it drains so much of your time and energy and it keeps you from doing the things that you really think you need to do to be effective, serving others. So the world has made it more difficult. It, ironically, with the advancements in the world, it's more difficult to do the big things. It might be easier to send an email than write a letter and put a stamp and walk to the mailbox. I know that. But to do 400 emails a day, <laughs> it takes away from a lot of other things that, that uh, might be more impactful. Right. Wow, this is really good stuff. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing this All right. information. All right. I appreciate it. Well, my pleasure, and it's always fun to be asked questions like that because every question you get asked, what goes through your mind is, I know I'm not doing what I'm telling you as well as I should. <laughs> so it's, it's a great challenge, you know, to do what you believe in better than you've been doing it. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you find this information helpful, please leave a review and subscribe. My goal is to teach these skills to as many people as possible, and leaving a review helps our search results, which helps us to reach more people. Remember, success and failure is determined by how we handle these critical conversations in our lives. My job is to make these difficult conversations easier while getting more of what you want in the process. I've had the opportunity to provide these negotiation and mediation services to a wide variety of professionals, including lawyers, entrepreneurs, and warring business partners. I do this through a simple three-step process, situational analysis, strategy creation, and plan implementation. First, we analyze the situation to get a lay of the land and understand exactly what we're dealing with. Then we use the information from our analysis to create a customized strategy for your situation. And then we work with you to put these powerful strategies into action so you can close the deal or resolve the conflict. If you don't prepare properly, you run the risk of missing out on these critical opportunities. Remember, negotiation is the art of deal discovery, not deal making. I will help you to find the best deal possible, and I'll teach you how and when to walk away from a deal that's bad for you. Sometimes the worst outcome in a negotiation is a deal that never should have been made. When we work together, you'll know that you've put yourself in the best position for success. 
Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email if there's a specific problem or opportunity you'd like to work through. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great week, and I'll catch you in the next one.